This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with two guests from Thoughtbot San Francisco, Jesse Young and Diana Zamuda. Hi, guys. How's it going? Hi, great. So you guys wrote a book recently called iOS on Rails, or you're almost done writing it. Yeah, it's in beta right now, uh, I think. Uh, the apps are pretty much complete, but the writing is almost done. <laughs> can can yeah. you give a, like, a little high-low overview of what the book is about? So the book is a two-part book. Um, one part is how to build an API with Rails, and the other part is how to consume an API with iOS. Mm-hmm. So are, are you both like switch hitters then, iOS and Rails? Um, no, I, I think we, we stay in our little sheepy field. Green pasture. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been like the perfect, you know, like metaphor. Yeah. Mm. No, I I think so far we neither of us has really crossed over to the other side. Mm-hmm. The genesis of the book was that we worked on a project together. Uh, where I was building an API with Rails and Diana was building the iOS side. I'm a Rails developer. She's an iOS developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a it was a pretty basic app, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the Rails side of things, but the iOS app is pretty basic. I know I've gone through like the hurdle tutorial before and tried to build a blog. Um, and I know that you've touched iOS work before. I'm going to hope that you can actually build the app that the book you know outlines. So. And you have, you found it. Yeah. Did you take turns doing building the app from the book of each other's sections? Well, Jesse's part is actually uh, slightly more advanced than I am as a Rails developer mm-hmm. because it's, it's for somebody who's built kind of apps before right. and it's like, oh, I've never built an API before. Let's see how to do that. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think looking at one of the challenges, I think, with writing the book was what kind of book is this? Like we had a conversation up front where I was like, is this going to be a step-by-step tutorial like the Hartle tutorial where it's like every single line, if you do every single line in that book, you will successfully create an app. Like there's no assumed knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, or do we want it to be super high level? And I think that we ended up going with something kind of in between where like you certainly have to have some knowledge. Like I'm not going to explain the concept of bundler or a gem file or, you know, what Rails is. Um, so that is not covered in the book. But if you have any Rails knowledge, you could follow along pretty easily, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I was writing the iOS part, I was talking to Jesse about like what kind of person or persons do we want to be reading this book? Do we want this to be shared between two super advanced developers? Or um, do we want this to actually be used by one person? So maybe somebody who's really you know good at Ruby, has made a Rails app before, can do and can uh, kind of grasp the parts that are in the Rails first part of the book, and then move on to the second portion of the book, having a strong command of object-oriented programming, so you don't have to explain things like delegates or like what's a singleton, but being a little bit more handholdy with the iOS portion of it, because that way you could be a Ruby developer, a Rails developer, and come and read the entire book in in one fell swoop. And that makes sense given, I think, our audience, which is probably definitely slants heavy on the Ruby side and with some overlap on the iOS side for sure, but but most of the focus on in the Ruby world, I would say. So how was the process of writing the book? Did you enjoy it? I, I heard from a lot of authors that it can be a slog sometimes. 
Yeah, it was interesting because there were very few points in time where Jesse and I were working on it in tandem. Mm-hmm. I know she, Jesse, started it November, November or something. So she started working on it, and then she was working on client work and didn't have time, except on Fridays, to work on it. And then I was working on it for a few weeks, and then was on client work and didn't have time to work on it, except for on Fridays. So now we're both working on it in in our spare time, and it's been a little bit more. We're both working at the same pace at this point. Instead of one person being like, I've written a couple of chapters. Can you look at them? Doing it in between actually working on Yeah, I think writing is like a is is a slog. It's it's not very rewarding until you have readers. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is that you don't want people reading your book when it's not done. Uh, so that's kind of we've gone around that a little bit with this concept of a beta book mm-hmm. because we released it and you know we've acknowledged it's not perfect. We're still working on it. We're still, um, we're still gonna add features to the app and add chapters to the book. Um, but I've noticed in myself, at least, like before we published the book, I was kind of procrastinating on it all the time. Mm. I was like, oh, I could do that, or I could do a pull request to this gem I've been using. <laughs> and always, like the the coding would be more exciting because that's like immediate feedback. Like, all right, I'm adding to this gem. I'm writing tests. I'm making the test pass. Whereas with the writing, until now, we have readers who are actually, it's awesome. We've gotten over a dozen um, issues, GitHub issues reported in the book. Nice. That was was one of my questions. Okay. Well, the question is how many? Have you been getting feedback? Is the beta thing working as a a two-way communication? I think it's working really well. I mean, I... As far as I can tell, that readers are very understanding that they're not like, this book isn't perfect. You know, why are there still issues? Like they're just reporting issues like it's any software product that, mm-hmm. you know, is going to have bugs or things that need to be filled out or feature requests. So if they have chapter requests and it's really cool to see that coming back. And I find myself really excited to respond to that feedback and to add chapters and to add content because now I know that we have all these people out there who are actually reading the book. So it's really cool. It's so rewarding to see things that we've been tossing around because we were like, oh, we should actually add users in. But then we were like, oh, well, is that is that within the scope of the book? Is this something that people want? And then people will come back and be like, hey, I think that adding users would be a really great idea. And to get that feedback that things that you were thinking are actually things that people want to hear about is really good for the final product. It's Once it's out of beta, it's going to have things that people specifically ask for and, and want to Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like this early releasing thing. It's kind of almost like the uh, like a lean methodology for writing things. It's like get feedback quickly. Don't wait until you're done, and then like you know you find the typos or you find the places where you've left something out. It's like get it out there earlier and and, and start having pe- real people see it. it. It's also a, a nice fit for GitHub, which is what we've been using to do this. So when you when you purchase the book, you actually get access to the GitHub repository, which is a nice fit because we're doing all our development in there, and uh, you can open issues or pull requests like on specific things, and that's. That's kind of a, a, a good model for a sort of collaborative, a semi-collaborative work like this. Yeah, well, and the code is in there, right? So because we don't go through every single step of the app in the book, mm-hmm. sometimes there might be holes. Like we don't have a code snippet for every little piece that you need. But you have in that repo, the iOS code and the Rails code are in there. So you can go and actually look at the entire completed app and see um, you know, how everything fits together. Mm-hmm. So. That works really well for a coding book. I know myself, I read a lot of programming books where there are concepts that aren't covered that I don't yet understand. And it can be really frustrating to not know, you know, to have to go to like a different book or Google around to figure out what this book is saying to you. Mm-hmm. Totally. Do you have a sense for what percentage complete the book is? I'd say it's about 
75% complete? What about you? <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe to say. I mean, so there are some things we... <laughs> it's about a C right now. Um, yeah, I think that we are going to add a few more sections. I mean, our initial goal was to make it like the MVP of books or the, an MVP type of app. Um, like there's no formal authentication right now, no password. It's all based on a device token. Um, but we have already heard feedback from people on Twitter that they're like, hey, pretty much every iOS app has some kind of authentication. Like, would you consider adding that? And so I think now we're more seriously considering adding features such as authentication that aren't necessary for every app, but are probably going to be helpful to most readers. So, hmm. yeah, maybe 75%. We're working on it every Friday. <laughs> and as new you know, uh, requests come in, I think those are probably going to sneak their way into the book. Not feature bloat. In, in the, that kind of vein, but in the vein of we actually want to put things into this book that people have requested that people want to read. Oh, sure. Everybody wants to see me implement another table view over and over and over again <laughs> because that's very, it's out there and you can, you can find that. But there aren't that many resources for people who are like, I want to build specifically a Rails API. I want to build specifically an iOS app that consumes that and you know, not an Android app using some sort of other kind of back end. Mm-hmm. Exactly this situation, having a nicely tailored book for anyone who, I know that there are actually a surprising number of Rails developers who are really interested in iOS. Like a, a lot of iOS developers I know have come from a Rails background and who are also no Ruby. They just mm. seem like better. Well, those are pretty natural overlap, right? Like yeah. you sort of, if you know the, the server side and you want to put something on a, a native app, you're, it's kind of the, the next step. So it's it's cool to see this model working. I mean, I remember we we tr- first tried this with the, our backbone on Rails book, and uh, we weren't sure if it would work. Like with that one, we actually did a little bit differently, where we announced the book before almost anything was written. We had like one chapter. So you know, this this has launched a, a roughly let's say seventy five percent done. But before we're like, yeah, we're gonna write a book, and you can have access to the repo as it happens, and people started buying it right away. Uh, so it's it's cool to see this model uh, change a little bit and, and also continue to work. Yeah, and I think it's really good motivation, you know, for the authors. Yeah. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think that you hear all these stories about professional writers who get a huge advance for some book, and you know, five years later they haven't completed it. And I don't know if that's—I don't think that's the nature of writers as people. I think it's the nature of writing, mm. which is that you never know if you're done. You never know if it's good enough. It's really easy to be self-critical. But if, if you have an audience of paying customers out there who want to use your book or read your book or get information on something that's a great motivator for us <laughs> also because our audience is so so helpful like submitting even tiny little pull requests every once in a while that turns up and i get an email about that and i'm like oh wow i'm reminded of this book that i really want to finish <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah just stop hmm. so let's dive into the details a little bit jesse i was wondering if you could maybe give me a bit of a high level uh, overview of what the recommendations you do make for people that want to build these apis on rails yeah, totally. So the project that Diana and I were on um, that kind of started off this whole book project, it was my first time building an API. Um, so I, you know, created JSON endpoints in a Rails app before, but I never created an app that was entirely an API. Um, so that was new to me. The cool thing is that, you know, Rails makes it really easy to make an API. So I immediately you know, started Googling around, like, what should I do? And there's, you know, I started asking Campfire and like everyone has a suggestion. You know, it's like there are a thousand supposed best practices. There's Active Model Serializers, there's JBuilder. I used Rabble a little bit before. There's just calling, you know, as JSON or to JSON. Mm-hmm. So there are all these different options. Um, and actually, our first iteration of the app, we built 
the other API almost entirely in Sinatra first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we went down that path and at a certain point it just started getting so big and we were doing all these workarounds to make it work with Sinatra and like the, like this started out with one little baby file, right? That was our whole Sinatra app. And then as it grew and it got more complicated, we were breaking stuff out and eventually it just made more sense to use Rails. Mm -hmm. um, and so then when we moved to Rails, we decided on JBuilder um, as a library for rendering JSON just because we really liked um, the fact that that is going to go in your view files. So, um, you know, there are positives and, and negatives to all of these options, but we found that to be a really great solution. Um, you know, writing request specs for everything was really great mm -hmm. and really helpful. Since then, I've worked on some other APIs that used active model serializers with a mixture of controller specs and like serializer specs. Um, but I really like that request spec model. Yeah, it's really pretty straightforward. It was It's just more a matter of like, okay, these are the tools that we decided on and this is why. And here's how you TDD API endpoints with these tools. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the, the Rails API gem? You know, I haven't used it, but I have heard some people say that that is another great solution. Have you used it? I haven't, but I think it just basically pulls out certain parts like the middleware and like it removes template generation and things like that. And so it's still Rails. It just basically Rails with less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you just, in the book, you guys just say start with the, the, the normal Rails situation and just add what you need. Yeah, that's what we do. We use, you know, we've used suspenders because it includes all of the ThoughtBot setup. It makes it so nice to just start up with like a setup script and mm -hmm. all the RSpec gem all set up and spec helper set up the way we like it. And so because that uses the Rails gem, I think that's what we stuck with. But we could definitely look into just trying to use the Rails API gem. That sounds like a great idea. I think it's basically just like a little more speed and maybe a little more simplicity, but it's, mm -hmm. gonna be, it's still Rails. So I think the difference is, is fairly small. And so I, I did notice you mentioned this, that the, you talk about testing, test driving, all these features, which is not shocking given a book from us. I think people would be sh more shocked to see that there weren't tests involved. <laughs> and, and so you're saying you liked that high level or request spec approach to this? Yeah, I really, I mean, you know, my general workflow on a typical Rails app, on a non-API Rails app is to write a feature spec and then to drive everything based off of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I found the request spec worked really similarly. Like you start with a request spec, you say, okay, I'm going to send this JSON and this is what I want to receive back. And it's just a really great high level way to start thinking about an endpoint that it really does allow you to test drive everything, um, you know, down to the unit test level. Sure. And you still do drop down into unit tests for the models and things like that. Yeah, we do. We do. So that's sort of uh, how do you build the thing that serves the API. Do you have recommendations in the book or do you think about a lot how to actually build a useful API in general? Like what should the design of the API be? Yeah, actually. So I've been researching this a lot um, this week. It's funny. I actually have this idea for a blog post on things I learned about APIs after writing an ebook on APIs <laughs> because <laughs> I've learned so much. Mm -hmm. um, also because I've been on two Rails API projects since that mm -hmm. first project when I started the book. Um, when we started the book. So watching these videos, I've learned kind of two major lessons. One is that there are a lot of standards that nobody uses. <laughs> <laughs> so there's kind of like the academic um, concept of REST APIs, which is like Roy Fielding, right? He wrote some paper. And, and there are all these concepts that come from him and come from that world that nobody really uses, like including an href link for every resource that you return. 
Hmm. I don't have a deep enough understanding to know why people don't do that, but I just know it's not a generally used practice. So it's really, it's, it's difficult because there are these like supposed best practices that come from the academic world, but then what is really practical? And I think that the number one practical lesson I've learned from, you know, watching various conference talks on YouTube and doing research is that the highest priority thing is just consistency across endpoints. So making sure that your URL patterns are consistent, it basically based that somebody could guess if they know you have certain objects or resources in your API and they know what some of the endpoints look like, they could probably guess what the other endpoints are going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a really small point, but it seems like that's a message I've seen just over and over again. And, and it seems that all the best APIs um, do that. And then the worst ones do not do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I can attest to the fact that our API, in fact, does do that because I found myself kind of before you would update the documentation, I would just be like, oh, I know exactly where this is going to be. This is going to be a slash users. And you conformed enough to your own standards, if not, you know, book reading or, I'm sorry, what was that guy's name? Roy T. Fields. If not Roy T. Fields, no <laughs> standards. You're conforming to your own standards enough that I could just guess at whatever I needed to go for. Like a user's request would conform to a multiple user's request kind of format. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So Diana, how about uh, on the iOS side of things, sort of a high level summary of what you've, what you're talking about and what your recommendations are? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the thing that I really like about the app that we built uh, for the book um, is that it's almost exactly like the app that I built for the project that we were working on before that this book is based on, exactly as it was before we started layering on a bunch of beautiful UI stuff and a bunch of really nice, you know, loading spinners and making text fields really pretty. It's the bare bones app that you would build a more robust app on. I think in the first few chapters, we actually go through setting up alpha and beta schemes so that you can send out your app to over test flight or hockey app to testers. So you're not building an app that's like some tiny little dummy app that you're just going to download on your phone and not give out to people. You're building skeleton of an app that could be extensible and could be distributed to people and put on the actual app store. Makes sense. That sounds roughly like our normal process for building things. We want to build you something minimal, but something still real that actually, you know, could be, you could shows real value it is a real thing is not a throwaway. Yeah. I know that uh, pretty early on in the book, I introduced the fact that I used CocoaPots on this app and sample app and also in the project that we were doing together. I think it's really nice for uh, Rails developers to see because it's very similar to how you use a lot of gems and you have a gem file. It's almost exactly the same. It's in fact written in Ruby and it's a very good bridge when you're coming from that kind of background to doing iOS work. CocoaPods is a pretty new thing and so it's not super 100% adoption rate amongst Objective-C developers because it's so new and it's so convenient that I think it's people like to do things manually. People like to import their own external third-party frameworks and keep track of them themselves. But it's a great dependency manager and I think that it really helps when you're coming from a background where you already have a dependency manager that's very popular and used by everybody. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier, and I think I agree, which is that a lot of our audience is probably Ruby-focused and maybe a little bit less experienced in the iOS side of the world. Do you have favorite resources for people beyond this book that are Ruby programmers looking to learn a little bit of iOS? 
Um, not specifically for Ruby programmers. I think in general, there are a lot of books for uh, learning iOS development. There's like Ray Wenderlich has a lot of beginner tutorials online that give you more of a handholdy and directional uh, approach where it's like, you're going to build a table view in this tutorial. So we're going to take you through every step that you need to build that table view. And at the end, you're going to have an app and it's going to have a table view in it. So if you have a specific uh, subject in mind that you want to learn about, you can go ahead and just search for that. And there are going to be a lot of tutorials that just teach you that one thing. But as far as building an entire app, there are not that many resources that take you through creating an app that hits an API and also deals with inputting text and then exporting that as a dictionary so that you can send that to your API and then actually have an end-to-end -end app, despite the fact that this doesn't cover any UI. But there are a lot of resources online for specifically that. So. Hmm. Okay. So how about uh, big lessons learned? Like Jesse, you said you, you feel like you've learned a lot by writing the book. Like what would you put in that category about book writing in general or even technical stuff? While we were on the project that preceded this book, I learned the huge importance of documentation and keeping that up to date because this was the first time that I had ever written an iOS app that consumed an API that wasn't already built. Hmm. So it was being built while I was actually building the iOS app. I think a few of the endpoints were already completely fleshed out, but the entire API wasn't complete. So getting up-to-date documentation and having that updated all the time, because I know that when you're building out an API, you have to change certain parameters just on the fly. And uh, keeping up-to-date on that was really uh, important and a really big step to having a good workflow through the app as well as through the book. So does that look like a document that says, here's how the API works, and that way you can work off that? Yeah, we researched into a lot of tools that generate API documentation just from a Rails app using, I think, your Ralphs file. Yeah, there are various solutions. Some of them use, they're kind of like RDoc. You have formatted comments that produce the documentation, and then there's some that run your specs, and based on the output of your specs, they create documentation. Mm. But we ended up just using Markdown in a GitHub wiki. Yeah, so <laughs> it was the easiest solution. Everyone can edit it. Super easy, and does the job. I think we use that for both the sample app for this book as well as for the project that we worked on before. Mm -hmm. It worked out, yeah, perfectly fine. As well as get, having access to the repo, and I could just jump into the Ralphs file and check things out if I needed to. I think one of my lessons. I mean, this is not probably realistic, but it would be so awesome to write a book about every project we work on. Lessons <laughs> learned. <laughs> because I, especially now being on a project that's very similar, it's a Rails app that's simply serving up an API that's going to be used by an iOS app. I found myself referencing my own book again and again and again. Hmm. It's just so nice to have it written out there and to remember certain tips or tricks um, or to send the client you know, right. a chapter of the book and say, okay, we're going to make a patch request today. Here's a chapter on patch requests just to start thinking about it. And it's just been so great. I think that once you finish a project, once you learn something, I mean, this is true for programming in general. It's like once you learn about a language, it all seems so easy and intuitive, right? So now that I know how to make an API with Rails, I'm like, oh, it's so obvious. You just, you know, use something great for generating your JSON and you organize it in this way. And I have it all in my mind. But 
honest, like really, it was a process of discovery to get to that point. It wasn't just like we knew automatically how it had to happen. I mean, Rails certainly guided us in that direction because that's what Rails is really good at, is forcing you to do things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting to the point where we are now with the book where we're like, okay, this is a proven way to build an API. It works. As the API got bigger, it was able to grow with it. That has just been such a great foundation for new projects that are iOS on Rails, which it seems like almost a third of our office is working on some type of iOS and Rails combo project right now. So mm-hmm. it seems to be a more popular project. I think a big important lesson that I learned as an iOS developer working with a Rails developer was that I wanted to request things from you since you were actually building the API while I was working on the iOS app. So I knew what I needed at, say, every screen, every view controller in the app. I knew exactly what data I needed to have at that point. But I had to resist the fact that I wanted to request, hey, can you just shove all that into one endpoint and feed that all back to me and not be restful at all, but give me exactly what I need and finding the balance between you don't want to be sending out like five different requests for one view controller before you're pushing out onto your screen Mm -hmm. uh, for an iOS app. But you also don't want to be sending so much just a huge cascading JSON file of every single user and every single like blog post that they posted and every single like every time you're hitting an endpoint, even if that's ideally what you want from the iOS side of things. Mm. You're kind of having to find that balance because on mobile you don't want to be making a ton of requests, but you also want to keep your API clean enough that another app that doesn't present information in that same order and Mm. doesn't present information in that same kind of hierarchy is going to be able to use it and is not just going to be entirely blasted by a huge wall of data. That is an interesting tension for sure. It's and it's a, it's a little bit like your uh, the iOS app is acting as like the driver of the API in a sense, like much like TDD. It's like, oh, well, I have this need, therefore I'm going to write the code to solve it. Like, did you find yourself intentionally staying a little bit of ahead of API development, so you could say, well, I know I'm going to need this data over here, therefore I need these endpoints. So Jesse, you go do that. Um, actually, I think what we found to be pretty advantageous is having the API a little bit further ahead than the iOS app hmm. because. You can, you can kind of figure out what you're going to need and what kind of information you're going to need back from every endpoint. Like, do I need the user's full name here? Do I need their first name and their last name? Do I need uh, their email address? Usually the answer to all of this is going to be yes. But having that built out before you're trying to consume it in the iOS app is really important. There are a lot of stubbing uh, libraries that you, or stubbing frameworks that you can pull in to just step out data and be like, this is mm. the JSON that I expect to get back from this endpoint, but I might not be getting back back from there yet. But that didn't seem like something that I wanted to go writing those JSON files and expecting our API to conform to that. Doing things in that order kind of means that the iOS app would be bossing around the Rails API. And if you wanted to build a Rails API that could be used by anything else, like by another Rails app, you don't really want to build it out in that kind of I also think what we're, what we're doing right now um, that I think is helpful is using Flinto. Are you familiar with Flinto? Um, it's like a wireframing tool. Our designers would give a much better summary of it. Um, but as far as I can tell, it's a wireframing tool that has a library of iOS components that mm-hmm. you can pull in. So it's just really easy to make a clickable prototype in a few hours. Mm-hmm. That has you know pixel perfect you know all these different iOS elements that I don't even have words for that I'm sure Diana has words for, um, and the really cool thing about that is that they're making a prototype 
and I'm able to make the endpoints according to those different views. So mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of saying the opposite of what Diana just said. She just said that it's better probably for the iOS to happen first and the API to happen before the iOS app. And I think the truth is, like with most projects, it's best if you're working kind of as closely together as possible. Because certainly there were times after I'd written the endpoint that Diana would say, oh, I need this other bit of information and I would have to, you know, submit a pull request. And, you know, it's really, it's really interesting working with another person who speaks an entirely different language than you do. Hmm. There were not few conversations where, you know, Diana would say something and I would have to say, hold on a second. Like what, what, what in your language, what does this mean in your language? I think we both speak JSON. Um, so that's kind of our, JSON's our interpreter. And mm-hmm. then we go, we go through that. to your Esperanto. Yeah. <laughs> it, so it sounds like it isn't exactly API first or iOS first. It's more like wireframes design. first. It's like the user experience and the design first. Yeah, I think that's definitely, and that's definitely in line with our process here where we do a design, a week-long design sprint oftentimes before a new project. And you'll kind of build out what the app is going to look like and what you're going to need in every single stage of the app. And then you start building your Rails API and then you start building your iOS app. So both parties know what what's going to be needed at every different stage, like what needs to be built out first. So you'll be building out, you know, backslash users, and I'll be building out how to actually present that information to the user in their settings screen, and they're going to see their face, and they're going to get that photo back, they're going to get that name back, and that'll kind of happen in tandem. But as long as design's happening first, that's, yeah, that's definitely a good takeaway. Hmm. So you guys both started as apprentices in the San Francisco office, sort of success stories of the apprentice program, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, I think Diana, you were hired as an apprentice a few weeks after me. So we were like seven and eight for the San Francisco office. I remember when I first came into interview. I know that that was probably like your first week and I was just pestering you with tons of questions. You're like, yeah, I love it here. It was was a very, yeah, very good, good feeling we got that I got here when I first came with the apprenticeship program, Mm -hmm. kind of giving you that transitioning step from not from zero to five or anything, but from like a, like two to five. Or five. Yeah, I think we both came out of coding boot camp. So I went to Dev Boot Camp and Diana went to Half Academy. Academy. I'm gonna call it Half Academy. App Academy. So I think that for both of us, doing an apprenticeship was the perfect next step Mm -hmm. because we got some real world experience Mm -hmm. without the stress of like, you know, this company's bottom line is, you know, on your shoulders and you hardly know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that was amazing. And it's incredible that that was just two years ago. It feels like we've both been here forever. And so that was, you did a three months working on real client projects with other ThoughtBotters? Yeah. And getting to have a mentor there. And I know that you probably switched mentors. I think you had three different mentors, one per month. I had two mentors because one of my mentors actually came on while I was already there. So yeah, I'm older than my mentor. But <laughs> when you were, years. You, were, you were also the first iOS apprentice, yeah. right? I was the first iOS apprentice, the second apprentice in the WhatsApp office. Hmm. So I was working with Mark, uh, who actually does the uh, iOS podcast here at Bellbot, mm-hmm. um, for I was his apprentice for a few months. And just having somebody there to pair with on something if I found something extra difficult or to get to jump in on when he was building like a calendar or something like that. Jumping in and getting to pair with someone who's slightly more advanced than you is really indispensable in my learning process. 
at App Academy, we did a lot of pairing. I think at Dev Group Camp, we also do that. So I was kind of used to that, used to learning and um, coding with someone else, you know, by my side, kind of having two brains at once working on something. So uh, getting to be weaned off that uh, through the apprenticeship program was really advantageous to me. So would you recommend uh, other boot camp grads go somewhere that has a bit of an, like an established apprentice type program? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, when you're coming out of an apprenticeship program, you're usually a junior level developer. So it's really nice to have a position for you that's not, as Jesse said, you're building out their entire iOS app and you're going to be the only person that is building a app that users, well, hopefully they're going to have a ton of users using that, but getting to maintain some of that mentorship and getting to have mm-hmm. someone to talk to about uh, high-level things is really important for someone who just came out of a very stressful and a very like full-time, you're you know running on at full steam kind of program. Yeah, I think that it's not necessarily that people need to be in an apprenticeship. They just need to be in a situation that understands what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And like, I think that different companies handle that different ways. Some people call it an internship. Some call it apprenticeship. Some just call it being a junior developer or a developer. But what's most important, I think the worst case for somebody, for any junior developer coming in any situation is to get a job that you're really excited about with awesome people and then be sitting in an office where everyone's wearing headphones, programming alone all day, and you have nobody but Stack Overflow to talk to. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and, and and I don't know if that's a common thing, but I can definitely see that happening, right? Where if nobody's, if there's no attitude of mentorship in your office, mm. um, and you're junior, you're not going to feel comfortable just going up to somebody and asking them something, especially when you you want to seem confident, you want to seem like you know what you're doing. Yeah. From my class at Dev Bootcamp, I think most people ended up actually just getting full-time jobs because um, there just aren't that many apprenticeships out there and there aren't that many internships out there that want to pay you enough money to pay your rent. So they end up getting full-time jobs and the people, some people had wonderful experiences. The people that did not have a wonderful experience were the ones who were kind of upfront. There was this vague promise of, oh yeah, I love pairing or I'll come and do code reviews every day. And then it what it really ends up being is, you know, like we expect you to hit the ground running with three right. months of rails under your belt. And that's just not a realistic expectation. Certainly six months later, that's a realistic expectation, but not right away. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I wish more companies had apprenticeships. I think it's an amazing, amazing program and it really helps the company. Um, I feel like the apprentices here, like every time we get a new apprentice, they really add life to our office. They're so excited. They're asking questions like we don't even remember to ask ourselves sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I love having the apprenticeship program now that I'm, that we're both full time. It's really fun to mentor them. It's really fun just to get to know them and mm-hmm. watch them grow so quickly. And it's been a huge business advantage for us, I think, because in that we've been able to hire people consistently out of the apprentice program. Whereas we, it's much harder to find people with a ton of experience because the demand for them is, is so insanely high. Uh, and so finding a place where we could actually hire the number of people you want to from was, was pretty huge. Yeah. And I think, and I've heard this from other people, and I really think it's true that having pe- someone in the room who's asking questions makes everyone else feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so even though, you know, we also have a lot of senior developers who have been doing Rails 
longer than I even knew what Rails was. <laughs> I feel like everybody at ThoughtBot is very open to asking questions. We have dev discussions every Friday. And like the other week, it was on JavaScript 101. And that's the kind of thing that you would expect, you know, any senior web developer to know a lot about. But it seemed like everyone in the room was comfortable not only attending a session called JavaScript 101, <laughs> mm-hmm. but asking questions and getting deep into things and, you know, really probing on, you know, what is the concept of an object in JavaScript or, you know, really trying to dig into things and not feeling like, oh, this is a company where we all pretend that we're experts on everything <laughs> related to programming and we're just all geniuses. Because mm-hmm. that's that's not true here. It's not true anywhere. Awesome. Well, I think that's actually a really good place to leave it. But uh, thank you both for coming on today. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. And good work on getting your book done, and and good luck on finishing off that final twenty five percent. Yeah, we'll keep the issues and pull requests coming. That's helping us a lot. Like the fire under. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 94. Thanks for listening.